Amen and amen. Good morning, Transit Church. Happy Mother's Day to you all. How are you all doing today? We good? Woo-hoo. Good, good. Um, well, hey, we are going through a sermon series as in, uh, through the book of Acts. So if you have your Bibles today, uh, turn there, tap there. We're going to be in Acts 5, verses 1 through 11. Acts 5, 1 through 11. And if you were here with us last week, we looked at Acts 4, verses 32 through 37. And we got this beautiful picture, kind of a snapshot, uh, a window in the early church of how they were living radically generous lives. We looked last week about how the gospel of Jesus Christ, the death and resurrection of uh, Christ changed how they thought about their wealth, how they felt about their wealth, and what they did with their wealth. So much so that in this early church community, just a few months old, this new covenant community, uh, there, it says in, in Acts 4, there wasn't a need among them. There wasn't a need among them. And they say the reason why was because the rich who owned real estate assets were liquidating those assets uh, under no compulsion, under no direct command from the apostles, uh, in order to lay the, the proceeds of those sales down at the apostles' feet to say, hey, uh, uh, go, go buy groceries for the next six months for that single mom. We want this, the proceeds of my second house or my, this field that I have, to go to the single mom or to the elderly widow with the, the, the leaky roof so she can sleep on a dry bed tonight, so on and so forth. So we got this beautiful picture, and we even got uh, the last couple of verses leading right up to our text where we're at today is we learn about this man named Joseph who was given a nickname by the apostles. Uh, Do you guys remember what his nickname was? Barnabas, yes. Son of encouragement, okay? So he sold sold a property. He lay at the apostles' feet. And Barnabas was a man of God, a son of encouragement who loved Jesus and freely laid down his treasure on earth because Christ was his ultimate treasure. He did it under no compulsion. He gladly did it. And so that was this beautiful picture of kind of love and unity in the early church that we saw last week, right? It was beautiful. Now today, in Acts 5, 1 through 11, we get the exact opposite picture. In our text today, in Acts 5, 1 through 11, we read of an account within the early church of a demonically inspired, hypocritical couple and the immediate judgment of a holy God that falls against them and they immediately drop dead. Happy Mother's Day. All right. (laughs) So a couple disclaimers, all right? A couple disclaimers before we dive in. One, if this is your first time here at The Transit, we're so glad you're here. We love you. And we're honored that you're here with us. The way we uh, preach here at the transit is we go through books of the Bible. We believe God's word is the revelation of God himself. Him revealing his redemptive story of Jesus Christ. His pursuit of dwelling in the midst of humanity through Jesus from Genesis to Revelation. So we honor God's word. We want God to be speaking. We want to hear God's thoughts, not my thoughts, not anyone else's thoughts. We want to get into God's word. We want to preach the full counsel of God. Therefore, we go through books of the Bible. And, uh, and when there's texts that don't make too much sense to us, or kind of difficult to understand, we don't skip those. We don't play leapfrog, we press right into it, all right? So one, just a disclaimer, this was it, I didn't pick this for Mother's Day, okay? This isn't my topical message, hmm, how do I want to encourage moms? Oh, Ananias and Sapphire, let's talk about that, okay? Uh, secondly, the second disclaimer is this, is today's a heavy message. It's a, it's a difficult text for us to understand, a difficult text for us to kind of wrap our minds around, let alone preach, right? And so with that said, um, I do want to say this. This text today is just a good reminder for us. It's a good reminder for us. And this is what I mean. Often in our lives, we kind of have this um, tendency to view the creator of the universe and the galaxies. The thrice holy God, holy, 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 is the Lord God. We kind of we have this tendency to view him as kind of a Barney in the sky, fluffy purple dinosaur, and, and, and kind of no reverent awe and wonder of his majesty. Are you tracking with me? Anyone here been to the Outer Banks before? Love the Outer Banks? These beaches off the coast of North Carolina. My family growing up would go to the Outer Banks, and I loved playing in the waves. That was what I would do 24-7 would just be in the waves. It was awesome. And I played this game as a little kid where I'd puff out my chest, and I'd let the waves come and crash, you know, crash on me in the chest and be like, what is this, a bathtub? Is that all you got, Ocean? Where are you at? Where are you at, waves? I would openly mock the ocean, okay, the Atlantic, you know. And then there came a day where, man, this wave came, church, and it, and it humbled me. I about lost my drawers. I about broke my neck. I mean, this thing, like a, like a tumbleweed, just picked me up and slammed me on the ground. I, got, I, had, a, I had like a golf ball-sized knot on my forehead, okay. And ever since this day, I'll still go in the waves, but now I have this reference, 
and this respect that I didn't have before, where once I was openly mocking and, and saying, what is this, a bathtub? This is trivial. There's no power here. There's no need to fear or, or revere or honor this ocean. What do you guys got on me? And now I've discovered through that experience, there, there's a healthy respect I have for the ocean now, all right? A healthy reverence. And that's what this text is today, where I think for some of us here, maybe not all of us, we, we, need, to, we need to have a, a realignment. Um, it's no mistake that the Holy Spirit uh, inspired this through the author Luke, and, and this is in God's word. Because his wants, he wants his people, yes, to know he's a God of love, and he's rich in mercy and grace and kindness to us, that he is for us, not against us. He's given us his son. How much more will he give us all things? But he's also a God who's holy and worthy of reverent worship and awe and wonder. So with that said, buckle up your seatbelts. We're going to pray, and then we're going to dive in, all right? So Heavenly Father, we come before you, God, with humble hearts. Lord, we thank you that you are a God who's rich in mercy, Lord Jesus. We thank you that you are a God who is holy and just, and yet also a God who is loving and kind. And we thank you for the cross of Jesus Christ, Lord God, the beautiful marriage where your holiness and your justice met your love and your kindness towards sinful humanity to save us from our sins and reconcile us back to you, God, because you love us so passionately. Thank you, God. We honor you. We bless your holy name, Jesus. And I ask, Holy Spirit, that you would come and you would speak and you would give us eyes to see you rightly, Lord Jesus, so much so that we would gladly hand you our sin and our secrets because you are far better. You're far better. You have so much more to offer your people than the sins we want to cling to. So I pray, Holy Spirit, you'd come and you'd soften hardened hearts, you'd open blind eyes, and you'd loosen uh, uh, any grip we might have on things that grieve you, Holy Spirit, and things that are killing us, Lord God, that you want us to be set free from today. So we honor you. We honor your word. Please speak through me. Anything I say that's not of you, please wash away and be forgotten. But I pray, Jesus, you'd be magnified, and I would decrease up here. And pray this in your name. Amen. All right, Acts 5, 1 through 11. I'm going to read through this, and then we're going to dive in. i got three points um, for my talk. So let's, uh, let's read this. You don't have to read it out loud with me. Just focus on what the words are saying. Acts 5, 1 through 11. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. And when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all those who heard it. The young man rose and wrapped him up and, and carried him out and buried him. And after an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. And Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? And behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. And immediately she fell down at his feet, breathed her last. And when the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And in verse 11, And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all of those who heard these things. So three things to frame out uh, our time together. One, we're going to look at what was the actual offense of Ananias and Sapphira. What did they did, right? And then secondly, we're going to ask from our perspective, right, why was this such a big deal? Why was their punishment for the offense so sudden and so severe? And then thirdly, we're going to look at, well, how does, how does the scriptures, how does God want us to respond? How should we respond today, okay? So the first thing we're going to look at is, um, the first point of my talk is, what was the actual offense committed by Ananias and Sapphira, the indictment, the crime. And at first glance in this text, it kind of appears like they, uh, they did a good thing, right? I mean, um, they sold possessions, they kind of held back some, and they gave it for those in need in uh, the church. But the problem was, was that this act of air quote generosity was actually a complete farce. It was a total sham. They, yes, they sold the property, but they secretly held money back, but said that they gave the full amount of what that property sold for. So the, so the picture we get is that this was a planned, premeditated, well-thought-through uh, hypocrisy, right? Uh, they thought about it. They had a conversation. Maybe Ananias got kind of jealous of Barnabas getting a nickname. So one day he looks at Sapphira, his wife, and he's like, hey, 
uh, I want a cool nickname, you want a cool nickname, I want some recognition in this church community, and what do you think about us getting these nicknames? What if we sell our property? But listen, I know we secretly love money, we're not going to do it because, you know, we actually love Jesus or we feel that the Holy Spirit should tell us to do this, but we just want recognition and the praise of man, and I want a cool nickname. What do you think about these nicknames? What if in the community I was known as Ananias the Generous? Or Ananias the courageous. And then, and then for you, Sapphira, what if they call you on fire, Sapphira, right? And you're just known as this, like, woman of God, anointed prophetess, and you could get a YouTube channel and book deals and, like, sign the books on fire, Sapphira, right? I mean, think about the recognition we get. So let's do it. We'll sell the property. We, like, all invest half of it with my brother. He's got this good investment, so we'll still do the kind of real estate thing on the side. And then we'll say we sold it. It's genius, Okay. What do you think? And it's, it's Sapphira, instead of slapping her husband and being like, repent, you sinner, she's like, that's the smartest thing I've ever heard you say in a million years. Let's do it, right? And so there comes a day where they sell the property. They've listed it. They've, you know, people have come, and they sell it. And uh, Ananias probably prints out, you know, this is an illustration, that, but bear with me, prints out the five-foot by, like, three-foot check, you know what I'm saying? And, like, brings it in to, to Peter, like, into the upper room and lays it down at Peter's feet, right? And has a conversation with him. Hey, Apostle Peter, Sapphira and I, we've been fasting for 40 days and 40 nights. We haven't had any food or any water, but Christ has sustained us. We love Jesus. That's how much hunger and love we have for the Lord. We sold our property. Here's the total amount. We're laying it at your feet. Yes, Peter, we know. Oh, we know it's a lot. We know it's a lot. But feed the orphan. Feed the widow, right? Like, like, and then, and then maybe, and maybe after he says all that, he's like, he sees the look of, 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 of stunned awe on Peter's face, and he's like, what do you think, Peter? Come on, just give me a nickname. What do you think? What do you think? Maybe we could hang this up in the church. And Peter has a look of, of stunned awe on his face because the whole time Ananias has been talking, the Holy Spirit of God has been revealing to him. This is how the Holy Spirit works. This is prophetic insight, supernatural revelation that this man is lying to your face, completely lying. And Peter goes and, and probably got the exact dollar amount that he held back or the percentage or something. And Peter literally says, says in our text, why in the world have you done this? Do you have any idea what you're doing? And, and then he says, and then he says, listen, you, you're holding back the proceeds. This is, you're, li- you're not lying to me. You're not, you're not lying to the apostles. You're lying to God. You're lying to the third person of the Trinity. God, the Holy Spirit, is who you're lying to. And he goes, he goes, you were under no compulsion to give your property. When it was not sold, it was yours. You could have held on to that for 30 years if you wanted to. Nobody's telling you to sell that. You, you, and, 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 and when you sold it, all the proceeds were, were yours. You could have given us, like, here's the irony of this whole situation, is they could have looked at Peter and said, listen, we're struggling with greed. We're struggling with generosity right? And, and we're, we, want, we want to give, but we don't want to give too much. So here's half of what we sold the property for. Peter said, hey, that's great, man. Thanks for your honesty. Well, yeah, we'll, we'll use what you want to give us, and we'll pray for you. There, there would have been no judgment, right? But there was, there was deceit. There was hypocrisy. There was lying. And so returning to our question, what was the crime committed? Well, speaking in official legal terms, Ananias and Sapphira were guilty of premeditated religious hypocrisy in the first degree, Right? Premeditated religious hypocrisy in the first degree. And so what is hypocrisy? Hypocrisy, a hypocrite, is someone who pretends to be something they aren't. Uh, In ancient Greek theater, actors were literally called hypocrites. They would wear masks and pretend, put on a show, a performance, and pretend to be something and someone that they were not. And so Ananias and Sapphira, what they were doing is they're putting on a a masquerade, a a theater performance, where they're wearing a mask of Christ-like love and generosity. But behind the mask, in all honesty, behind the mask, what we learn in our text was a proud, deceitful, greedy, demonized, selfish, hypocritical couple behind the mask. Because here's the issue that we need to understand is that Jesus isn't after our external actions. He's after our hearts. He wants us to be sincerely devoted to him, to have pure hearts. The pure in heart, Matthew 5, 8 says, will see God. Jesus is after our hearts, not just after religious hypocrisy. Okay, he's after our hearts, sincere love. And what we see is that this giving they did was not done out of sincere love for Jesus and a sincere love for others. It was done out of a love of self so that everyone in the church could behold their glory and their goodness, not Jesus. At the core of hypocrisy is pride. It's self-exaltation, not Christ's exaltation. And so for the hypocrite, having a right and sincere, pure heart before the living God is of zero concern. That does not matter. All that matters is a right reputation before men. Right, that's, that's 
That's the, the, the rub right there. And so that's the first part. That was the offense, was this, this, this masquerade, this show, this performing, external actions that don't flow from a, a pure heart, a sincere heart. And if we're honest with ourselves, right, we, we all struggle with this to varying degrees, right? And, um, and with that said, uh, my second point is this, is, is why from our perspective was their punishment so sudden and so severe? Why, why, from our perspective, was it so sudden and so immediate? Because what we see is once the revelation comes, when Peter looses the revelation from the Holy Spirit, I mean, the Lord delivers a knockout punch in the first round, right? Like, boom, Ananias drops like a bag of dirt, and then Sapphira is given an opportunity to repent, and she doesn't repent, and the same thing happens, right? Why so sudden? Why so severe? But, so I think there's four things. There's four things that I think we need to understand that will help us. And you can read commentaries, you can read some scholars, and honestly, there is a mystery of, 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 of who our God is. There's a mystery there, and so I'm not saying that um, we fully understand it, and you can read some really good New Testament scholars who humbly approach this text too, and saying we don't um, fully understand this from our kind of sinful warped perspective, and truly understand the, the holiness of God and the severity of our sin. So the first thing, four things to frame out, uh, of why this was so sudden and severe, is that we need to understand the severity of the offense that religious hypocrisy is before God. If you read the Gospels, the eyewitness accounts of the life of Jesus Christ, we see that some of the harshest rebukes of Jesus Christ were not towards sinners, were not towards tax collectors, were not towards prostitutes or adulterers, it was actually towards religious hypocrites. Like, if you read the Gospels, Jesus said, go read Matthew 23, and Jesus apparently didn't read Dale Carnegie's How to Win Friends and Influence People, and he does not soften the blow when he talks to the religious leaders of Israel. He, he does not dilute it. He does not soften it. Just righteous, pure anger for the, the masquerade that the religious leaders were putting on. And, um, and, and what, what we learn that Jesus teaches us about hypocrisy is it's a, it's a, it's a life of lying. It's a life of deceit to others. We are constantly selling them a, a mixed bag of goods. You're constantly telling them, I am not actually like this on the inside. So you're being lying to others, but ultimately, hypocrisy is lying to God. Lying to God, okay? So look at Matthew 23, 5 through 6. Jesus, talking about the religious leader, says this to his disciples. They do all their deeds to be seen by other. Their life is a stage. Their religion is a stage. It is a performance. It is bad dinner theater. For the watching audience, for everyone in the synagogue, these Pharisees are tap dancing for everyone to, to make them think that they are righteous men of God when in fact their hearts are a million miles away from me, okay? They, they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. Those are kind of their religious merit badges of showing, showing how far they've leveled up. And they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplace and being called rabbi by others. They wanted the religious merit badges, badges and the cool nicknames in the church community. Recognition, honor, self-exaltation with actually no fear of God and actually having pure devotion and sincere devotion to him. So Jesus calls it like he sees it. And he says, this is bad dinner theater. This is a complete masquerade. And they're to be the shepherds of the people of God. So the, the harshest things Jesus had to say were towards religious leaders and, and, and hypocrites, okay? And then Matthew 15, Jesus says it's not just that they're lying to men. They're putting on a show, a performance, wearing a mask. Ultimately, they're lying to God. Matthew 15, 7, Jesus says this to the, to the religious leaders. You hypocrites! Exclamation point. Not question mark. Are you, are you guys hypocrites? Not dot, dot, dot. Not comma. You hypocrites! Exclamation point. All right? Well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, and what did he say? Next verse, I'll read from my notes. He said this, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. I forgot to include that. That's my bad. Not the, I don't want to blame you guys. That's on me. That's my bad. Uh, this people honors me with their lips, and their heart is far from me. And so what Jesus is saying here about the religious leaders is that out of their mouth comes, comes these really long, lathing prayers in front of the congregation. And they honor me with their actions, but their hearts are a thousand miles away from loving me sincerely. A thousand miles away. And what we need to understand about hypocrisy 
And, and the reason it's such an extreme offense before God is because we have to understand that we are in a covenantal relationship with God. We have to understand the relational aspect of our, our walk with Jesus, okay? Throughout scriptures, our God is a covenantal love, a God of steadfast love and faithfulness. And throughout scriptures, we see these vows being made from God to his people where he pledges his covenant faithfulness to his people. And then his people respond likewise, pledging their covenant faithfulness to God. So the refrain goes like this. I will be your God, and you will be my people. And then the people respond, and then they say, yes, you will be our God, and we will be your people. That's, that's, that's a covenant almost of marriage, right? Like, till death do us part, you are our only God. We will have no other gods, no other idols that we will worship. And so the reason hypocrisy is such a big deal is that through our external actions, we're saying we love and adore God, while in actuality, we're, we're lovers of other gods. Does that make sense? Hypocrisy is actually adultery, but it's, but it's actually worse than adultery in God's eyes. This is why it's so, it's so extreme. So, this, so the modern-day example of what this would look like would be uh, the husband who leaves the bed of his mistress, and within the same hour goes to his wife with cards, with a card and flowers and a gift and writes this beautiful letter pledging his love and adoration and affection for her. He says, let's get a selfie, let's upload this to social media so everyone can see how faithful and honorable the husband he is when he just left the bed of his mistress. That's our hypocrisy before God. That's what it looks like. When we put on this religious show through good deeds and performance, but in fact our, our, our lives are secretly a thousand miles away from him. And it's actually hypocrisy is worse than adultery because God, Jesus has a ton of compassion. For John 8, the woman caught in adultery, everyone wants to stone her, and Jesus looks at her and says, does anyone here condemn you? No. And he goes, neither do I condemn you, but now go and leave your life of sin. That's the compassion Jesus has. The reason Jesus, um, uh, hypocrisy makes his skin crawl is because there isn't honesty. There isn't an awareness of our true heart condition that we need a savior, that we need forgiveness, that we need help. The hypocrite just refuses to acknowledge and bend their knee to Jesus and say, please forgive me, Father. Woe is me. Jesus shares a parable in the Gospels uh, uh, of, of the, the, uh, the Fer a Pharisee and a tax collector in the synagogue. The Pharisee stands and he surveys the tax collector and he goes, thank you, God, that I'm not like this man. Thank you, God, that I tithe. Thank you, God, that I'm such a good person. Thank you, God, that I do all these good things and I'm so unlike this sinner. And then Jesus talks about the prayer this tax collector's praying. And the prayer is he's beating his chest and he's saying, have mercy on me, O God, a sinner. Have mercy on me, O oh God, a sinner. And then Jesus says this, one of those individuals went back to their home justified. Went back to their home justified. Okay? And so what Ananias is doing here, and Sapphira, is this. Is Peter looks at Ananias and he says, listen, you are not lying to me, Ananias. You're lying to God. You're lying to God. This big three by five, you know, check that you printed out, this love letter to God that you're giving us saying you just love God and you love others, you have a secret lover and it's called half the proceeds of the property that you're holding back. You don't actually love God. This is all facade. You're, this, is, this is you lying. Twice he says lying to God, lying to the Holy Spirit. It's unfaithfulness to God. And it's a masquerade. It's not true. It's duplicitous. And um, so all that to say is that hypocrisy is a really, really big deal. For Ananias and Sapphira, this wasn't a slight mistake. This was premeditated. This was uh, uh, planned. And uh, what we learn about God's holiness is that the severity of the fence, in a way, kind of matches the severity of the judgment, right? And then the second thing we see here uh, to help us understand uh, the severity of this, this judgment is we have to understand the stage of development the early church is in at this time, right? The new covenant community, the blood-bought community of Jesus is only a couple months old. And they're roughly 10,000 people, very, very, very young believers. And they're kind of like in utero. They're like in the incubation stage, right? A very fragile stage in redemption history. Uh, my kids and I were going to this pond close to our house, and there's this mother goose who's been sitting on the same spot for a couple of weeks over her eggs. It's pretty cool. And we're trying to keep going back because we're starting to, we want to see these little baby geeses, right? Gooses, goosen. I don't know what the plural of geese is, all right? Um, anyone listen to Brian Reed and got that reference? Anyways. She hasn't left. She hasn't left. Why? Her little chicks are in the incuba incubation stage. They're kind of still in utero. There's going to come a day when, when, when she's not going to operate necessarily with that same kind of, and she fixes a glare on us. When we go close to the fence, she's looking at us like, I will end your life. If you come from my little chicks, what do you guys think you're doing? And then I'm like, all right, kids, geez, this thing's about to, this thing's about to attack us, right? So we have to understand that the church is in a very fragile state 
that if this, meaning this, that if this religious hypocrisy went completely unchecked in the church, the Lord kind of swept it under the rug, the Holy Spirit didn't reveal this, that what if, who's to say, that this religious hypocrisy wouldn't have spread like a cancer throughout the body of Christ, leading to its death, meaning the gospel doesn't go to the nations and you and I aren't saved today and we're still stuck in our sins, right? What if God, who's all loving and all knowing and all just and all wise, says, you know what? I don't often operate this way in the New Covenant community. We only have one instance, uh, a recorded instance of how God operates this way in the church, and it's this one today in Acts 5, 1 through 11. And God nipping this in the bud and saying, the stakes are too high. This is, this is where the church is at right now. It, this would ruin the church like a cancer. I, I have to in my justice and my love. I have to speed up the judgment here, the discipline here. And listen, scholars, as the scholars I read, we don't know if Ananias and Sapphira uh, uh, weren't believed. They very well might have been saved. They might have been born again. They might have been regenerate, okay? So the Lord might have just said, hey, sorry, Ananias, sorry, Sapphira. Come talk to me in heaven. Quick time out. Uh, we can't have that here, right? Like, we don't know. Scholars, the text doesn't say that. The text doesn't say that, okay? So one, we have to understand the fragile stage of development. Very, very fragile, early stages, only a couple months old at this point uh, after Pentecost, okay? Um, so that will help us frame to understand this. But secondly, thirdly, uh, a third thing that will help us understand uh, this text is we have to understand that the church is at war against the kingdom of darkness. And we have to understand that the kingdom of darkness is at war against the church. And so, uh, simply said, the church has a real enemy. His name is Satan. He has a kingdom full of demons who hate God and want nothing more than to destroy and devour God's people. So the church has a real enemy. His name is Satan. He has a kingdom full of demons who hate God and want nothing more than to destroy God and devour God's people and ruin God's creation. Okay? Listen, let me just say this. That is not a fringe charismania teaching in the church. That is Christianity 101. That's elementary status. That's the basics. It is all throughout the New Testament. Clear as day. Clear as day. I'm going to share a quote by Martin Lloyd-Jones two weeks from now. Uh, come, come next week, Abby's dad, Chris Halloran, is going to come and preach on prayer and evangelism. It's going to be amazing. It's going to be awesome. We have a guest preacher next week. And then in two weeks, I want to preach about our next text and talking a little bit more about spiritual warfare. But we have to understand that we are in a battle. And so far, what we've seen in Acts is that the opposition to the church came from the outside of the church, right? In Acts 3 and 4, we see persecution. The religious leaders, the Pharisees, arrest Peter and John. They threaten them with violence, and they're persecuting from the outside. The enemy is trying to come and destroy God's church from the outside. And what we see in our text today is that uh, demonic opposition actually comes from within the church, right? Look at verse 3. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? And so in a way, kind of what we see here is that Satan planted an emissary from the kingdom of darkness within the ranks of the church in order to destroy the entire church and the move of God from the inside out. And the way he did it, listen, the emissary he planted in, the thing that he tempted Ananias and Sapphira with was not like, it wasn't like Satan like sent a murderer, right? Or sent like, you know, think of the worst thing into the church. What would destroy the move of God and the, and the church as a whole, what, what, just of all the things Satan could tempt Ananias and Sapphira with, it was religious hypocrisy, right? That that would destroy the unity of the church. That would destroy their devotion for Jesus. That would destroy the, the move of the Holy Spirit across the face of the earth. And what's interesting here is that the same verb to be filled with the Holy Spirit, Peter uses here to say that they were filled with the demonic. That you were filled with the demonic, you are under the influence, the compulsion, and the unction of demonic spirits, not the Holy Spirit. That's what it's the same verb, being filled with. Satan has filled your heart. The same verb throughout Acts of being filled with the Holy Spirit. Now listen, I think one of the biggest lies, and I'm, talk, I'm not going to talk too much about this. I'm going to talk more about it in two weeks. One of the biggest lies we believe in the church is that we are untouchable to the demonic. What we have to understand is that there is an unseen, and that the unseen is more real than the seen. And that there is a good seen, the kingdom of God, and there's a bad, uh, a, good, uh, a good unseen, and, a, and a, there's a bad unseen and a good unseen, and, and that the bad is really real, and it's really coming against us. And for believers who are in Christ, we have this false notion that because we're in Christ, we are invincible. We walk around like MC Hammer in a lion's den saying, can't touch this, right? They're baggy pants, no, 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 no. Meaning this, I can do what I want. I can say what I want. I can watch what I want. I can have as much anger in my heart as I want, and, I, and, and the devil can't touch me, baby. 
no stronghold, no advantage over my life, uh, no compulsion. I'm totally, I'm, I'm, I'm immune, right? And yes, God has disarmed the enemy, but yes, we have to armor up with what Jesus has given us. We have to armor up. First uh, Peter 5, 8 says this, be alert. Be sober-minded. Your, your adversary says this is the enemy you have. In Ephesians 6, read Ephesians 6 too, 1 Peter 5 8. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And, and you might have heard it said from other uh, preachers or pastors or podcasts that, yeah, the enemy's saying he's a lion, but he's been declawed and defanged. That's bogus. That's not what the text says at all. That's not what the text says at all. The text says if, you, if you're not alert and you're in 2 Corinthians 2 says we need to not be ignorant of, how, of the enemy's schemes and not give Satan advantage verbatim. 2 Corinthians 2, go look it up, what Paul says about not being ignorant of Satan's schemes. So he has no advantage over us. Yeah, we have the power and the authority of Jesus that supersedes any demonic attack, but we need to be sober-minded. We need to be alert that the enemy can have compulsion. And what that means is this, is that what if God's exhortation to his people Track with me here. What if God's exhortation for holiness is to say, hey, this is for your protection. This is for your good. Like, like sin issues you deal with that you don't think are a big deal, God can see in the unseen that you can't see. And maybe he sees a kingdom of, of the demonic that's coming against you with that sin issue, right? So that's why we want to live and walk in holiness is because the Lord is saying that we are not immune to spiritual attack and spiritual oppression. Okay, I'm talking more about that in a couple weeks. But um, the call to holiness is an invitation of a God who loves us and loves his people and wants us to be walking in freedom and not be bound by the demonic. And what we see with Ananias and Sapphira is that through their greed, through their hypocrisy, through their pride, that they gave an open door to the demonic. So the demonic came and added compulsion to their lives. And they allowed, they allowed company into their lives that should have never been there if they would have walked in holiness, Okay. And so, one, we see that this was an act of war against the kingdom of God from the kingdom of darkness. And the Lord says, I'm not, I'm not going to have another Judas situation on my hands at this stage in the church. Twice in the Gospels, it says Satan filled Judas' heart, and then he betrayed Jesus. And then we see here that Satan filled the hearts of Peter and Ananias and Sapphira. And the Lord's saying, not again. I'm not going to tolerate this. I'm coming against that. Maybe, maybe that's what's happening here. So we have to understand the warfare that we are in. Uh, as a church, that we have a real enemy, and all of us in Christ Jesus, we are in the crosshairs. We're in the crosshairs, but, but the Lord gives us Ephesians 6. He gives us the power and the authority of the gospel that we don't need to walk in fear. We never need to be fearful of the enemy. We need to be walking in just a sober-mindedness and alertness of how he's trying to get a foothold in our lives. Fourthly, we have to understand what the church actually is. We have to understand that the church is the temple of the Holy Spirit. The fourth thing we need to understand to help us frame out what's happening here. The storyline of Acts, the storyline of the entire Bible from Genesis to Revelation, um, but particularly in Acts. I'm not going to spend too much time here because we've talked about it at length in our sermon series. But thanks to Jesus Christ, his death on the cross for our sins, his resurrection, his glorification, his ascension to the right hand of the Father, and his pouring out of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, the church is now that holy place where the holy God can dwell with his holy people, right? We, the church, what makes us unique is, is we are the place that God's spirit dwells. Every believer, once you confess Jesus Christ as Lord, the Holy Spirit fills you. He fills your heart. You get the, the, the guarantee, the deposit of what's to come, the presence of God. Just the Spirit of Christ is now within you, applying the redemptive work of Jesus on the cross to your life. It's the best gift you could ever get in the world. It's exactly what your entire heart has been longing for and searching for, is this transcendent connection with the God of love. Your entire life, you've been searching for that. Whatever sin you're wrestling with, that, that inner ache in your heart is for exactly what Jesus accomplished for you, is for you to know God and to love him and be filled with his spirit. Because where you are, what we learn, is where you are, God wants to be. So yes, he's holy, but yes, he loves you ferociously and passionately so much that, that, that Jesus would, would, would die on the cross in the midst of your sins to take your sins upon him so that you could be sanctified and made holy so that the holy God can dwell with you. This is what 2 Corinthians 6, 18 says. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, as God has said. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them, and I will walk among them, and I will be their God, and, the, and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord. Almighty. And so the language we see here is covenantal language. We see God saying, 
I will make my dwelling among you. You will be my people. I will be your God. I will be a father to you. We see this beautiful love, this relationship, and yet we also see that God's saying, hey, when I'm moving in, when I'm going to purchase you with the blood of my son, I'm going to rescue you from the clutches of the kingdom of darkness, I'm now moving in. I now hold the title to your life because I've saved you. You're mine, and you're my precious son and my daughter, but now where you are is where I am. I'm dwelling inside of you. So we, the church, collectively are the place where God's spirit dwells in us and among us. It's the most amazing privilege in the entire universe is that we get God. That's what J.I. Packer says is the biggest blessing of the gospel is that we get God. And the response to that, the response to this is that we just maybe need to be reminded of who exactly is with us when we say the Holy Spirit is with us. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. When we're saying that, we're saying the perfectly righteous, the perfectly just, the perfectly pure God of the universe. Not an not a ounce of sin or imperfection is now with us. He's dwelling with us, okay? And when we understand his holiness, it helps frame and, 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 and give us a proper perspective of our sin. And so Friday, uh, I, uh, this Friday, I left my office and I came home to my kids playing with two baby chickens, okay? Don't know where they came from or whatever, but the Coles, Brian, Brian Ashley Cole dropped off a, a couple of baby chickens for my kids to play with. It was awesome. It was my house, and I'm a, I, I think I'm a good father because I have so much love for my kids. And, I, and, and, and what they were playing, what my kids were playing with was pure, innocent, uh, uh, joyous laughter and fun with these cute little baby chicks, right? I loved it. It was great. My heart is good for them. I have good things for them. It was great. Whatever is pure, whatever is noble, this was great. Okay, that's what's interesting, is, and it was so cute. Apparently, uh, Kelsey held one of the baby chicks in her lap the whole time she was watching a show or anything. It was awesome. Anyways, what's great about the transit is people will drop off like barnyard animals and then also like a scoby so you can brew your own kombucha. Anyways, it's awesome. Um, and uh, that same day, that morning, I get my trash can because it was, it was trash, trash day. I bring it back, and underneath my trash can is this massive dead bird, okay? I don't know about you, like, for some reason, dead birds just give me the heebie-jeebies, man. It just creeps me out. Like, just like, oh, gosh, like, if it was a squirrel, no big deal. Okay, whatever. Like, sorry, sorry for your loss. But uh, a bird, I'm like, oh, my gosh, it's just terrifying, right? Now, what if I came home to my house, my dwelling that I hold the title to, that I've, my wife and I have purchased, right? And, uh, and I come, and my kids aren't playing with something that's pure and, 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 and fitting for the household. They're actually playing, they brought that diseased dead bird into the house, into my house. So the way I would respond is saying, hey, whoa, 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 whoa. You can't just bring that in here. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of I'm kinda clean, and, and this house is clean, and this house is going to get completely tainted if you bring that decaying, diseased, like, plague-ridden bird in this house. But, so one, it comes from the perspective of we have to understand our sin from the perspective of, of, of the Holy Spirit, right? Of we, of, of we now, if the Holy Spirit fills us, we don't just get the vote to bring things in that grieve the Holy Spirit. Right, if that decaying bird, the stench of that bird was in that house, I would repeatedly tell my kids, you got you to go bury that in the backyard. That's not of this household anymore. That's from where you came from, right? Like kingdom of darkness. This is not the kingdom of God. I can't tolerate that. This is grieving me, you bringing this in. And, and, and I, just, I would just pray that the Holy Spirit would reveal to you what ways that, that um, uh, uh, our sin is this decaying carcass, what, what sins we're struggling with, that, that what we're grieving the Holy Spirit who's present with us. Maybe some of the things we're watching or some things we're listening to or some of the, the bitterness we're harboring, right? And then secondly, my exhortation for them to, to cleanse themselves from this impurity is also for their own good. Hey, if you hold on to this dying bird, this diseased bird, you're, it's going to kill you, right? You're going to get some skin rash. You're going to get this, the fragrance of death over you, and you're going to start another global pandemic, right? <laughs> Like, you got to go bury this thing in the backyard because I love you. I want what's best for you. And the cry of the Father heart of God, the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of us is, i got so much better to offer you than this. Our sin, every exhortation of God to walk in holiness is, a, is an opportunity for us to encounter more of the depths of his love. The, God's holiness is the purity of his love. The, Sinclair Ferguson says this. His holiness is the radical devotion of the Trinitarian Godhead to each other. Father loving the Son, Son loving the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, there's this, this beautiful divine dance of them for all of eternity, the pure, uh, 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 just like the devotion of their love for one another. And that's the devotion that Jesus invites us into, this love. And there's things that, that grieve his Holy Spirit. There's things that are dying and, and killing us. And his invitation is lay that down so you can experience more of the depths of my love. I have much better things in store for you, okay? So we have to understand holiness from the fact that this is God's dwelling, and he gets a vote 
for that. And our sin is like bringing a decaying dead carcass into the house when the Lord is saying, you need to get that out of the house. It grieves me because of my holy sin. It grieves me because of my love for you. I hope that makes sense. So lastly, and I got to wrap up here. I got to wrap up here. Lastly is this. How should we respond? How should we respond to this heavy message? And uh, we need to ask the question, well, how did the early church respond? What we see in verse 11 is this. Great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. So two times in this passage, the word great fear comes in the Greek. It's actually megas phobos. Phobos meaning fear, mega meaning mega, like, like great fear, like awesome, awestruck wonder and fear of the Lord. And so what we need to do, I think for us, is to return to a healthy fear of the Lord. A healthy fear of the Lord. That's not just an Old Testament command. That's a New Testament command because we still have a father. And this is what the Proverbs say about the fear of the Lord. I want to I renew our minds when it comes to what a healthy fear of the Lord looks like. Proverbs 14, 27 says this. The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life. God is after rivers of living water of his grace and his love being poured into your heart. That's what Jesus accomplished for you. The fear of the Lord is actually a fountain of life. Fountain of life. Why? That one may turn away from the snares. Of death. So the fear of the Lord is not something oppressive and severe where God is continually angry at us and hates us and we're just one mistake away from getting struck by lightning and dropping dead. Okay? That's not, that's not how God operates with his kids. What we see is God is for us. He loves his kids because he's, because he's our heavenly father and we're his blood-bought sons and daughters. Okay? So uh, the fear of the Lord is a fountain of life. And so let me illustrate this to help you understand what a healthy fear of the Lord looks like. The opposite of fearing our Heavenly Father looks like this. We, don't, we, don't, we think we're totally immune from his, from his, from his uh, discipline or the consequences of our sin. We think we're completely untouchable. We're invincible, right? And the reason we have this is because often we preach cheap grace in the church. Keep doing what you're doing, and you will not, and, and, and yes, Christ has forgiven you. Like, this is the radical nature of grace. He will forgive you for all your sins, past, present, future, if you are in him. You can rest assured that the penalty of your sin is paid for. But for, we've, we've lost this understanding that we're spared from the consequences of our sin as Christians. That we're, we're kind of like trust fund kids where daddy will come and bail us out. And we can live reckless lives, doing, dabbling with whatever we want to dabble in. And God will bail us out because we're in Christ Jesus. And so let me illustrate this for you of how the fear of the Lord is a fountain of life. I'm a father. And I love my two kids. I'm teaching them how to ride their bikes. And the, the, the first commandment of riding your bike that I give them for their good is this. Before you move from the sidewalk to the asphalt, stop your bike, look both ways to see if there's any cars coming, and then cross the street, right? Like, simple rule. I say that out of love. If I didn't love them, go get them, tiger. Like, uh, good luck, right? No, I love them. I can see things they don't see. My commands are for their good. God's commands are for your good. His exhortation is for your good. And so if my kids were not walking in a healthy fear of what daddy was saying, they would say this. One, they would say, daddy's a liar, and I'm going to mock him because there is no consequence for my disobedience. When I'm riding my bike, I will ride my bike wherever I want to ride my bike. Thank you very much, pops. And I'm not going to stop. I'm not going to slow down. I'm going to go right into that busy street, right? And, and you're a liar because I've done that time and time again in my life, and I haven't got hit by a car yet. So you're a liar, right? I, there's no consequence. You're a liar. So one, that's walking not in a healthy fear of what our Father is saying in his word. The law is for your good. It's for your good. It's the Lord saying, heads up, there's cars. There's cars in the street. But then secondly, secondly is this, is that it's not just not having a fear of consequence of our sin. It's not, it's not having a healthy understanding of the discipline of the Lord. What Hebrews teaches us is the Lord loves you. And because he loves you, like any good father, he's going to discipline you. So my kids not walking in a healthy fear of daddy and what daddy said is that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do what I want when I want. And, and daddy's a softy, right? There's no discipline coming my way. There's no, there's no timeout. I'm not going to lose this bike. He's not going to intervene if I like, directly with an unrepentant heart willfully disobey him time and time again. He's not going to do a thing. Why? I'm untouchable. That is pride, and that is a dangerous place to be. And I hope you can see how the, the scriptures throughout the centuries, both old and new, encourage us to walk in a healthy fear of the Lord. We love God. We want to obey him and honor him above all else with our lives. And Galatians 6 says this, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that he will also reap. So I'll conclude with 2 Corinthians 7.1. 
2 Corinthians 7.1, remember I read that verse about, from 2 Corinthians 6, talking about us being the temple of God, the place where God's glory dwells. The immediate verse that follows that is 2 Corinthians 7.1, which says this. Since we have these promises, beloved, we have these beautiful promises of God with us. And then look at how Paul describes the church, beloved. You today in Christ Jesus are beloved. You are ferociously loved by God. He is radically for you in Christ Jesus. He has given you his precious son. How much more will he not give you all things? Radically for you, you are beloved. And because you're beloved and because his spirit is with you, now today let us respond, church. Let, it, let Invite the Holy Spirit to come search our hearts. Let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit. Why? Bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Holiness to completion in the fear of God. So, so our response today looks like this. Confession, repentance, and faith, okay? So let's, I'm going to give time as I close up here for you all to just go before the Lord and just talk to him, okay? Yeah, and Ben, you can come on up here and confess. Be brutally honest. Here's the, here's the deal about secret sins is there's no such thing when we serve an omniscient God, right? He already knows. And listen, some of the greatest moments of grace and love that Christ has shown me are in the moments where I thought I was going to get struck by a lightning bolt for confessing some things before him. He already knows he already knows. So confess. Bring it to him. Confess. That's his heart. He wants you to come to him today and bring that to him because he wants to set you free from that. And secondly, repent. Turn from that. Wherever the Holy Spirit leads you to uh, with conviction of, of things in your life that are actually a decaying carcass that the Lord wants you to get rid of, repentance is turning from our sin. It's, it's making a decision of the will. We're saying, I'm no longer doing this. Holy Spirit, I come and I need your help. Come bring me brothers and sisters in Christ that I can walk in the light with and get help as I learn to get progressive victory over this thing that is trying to ruin and destroy my life. So confess, bring it to light. Maybe for the first time, posture your heart and surrender to Jesus. Ask him, ask him to, to forgive you and to cleanse you and to give you a pure heart so that you can rightly see him. Confess, repent, turn from your sin, live in the light. It's so much better, church. It's so much better to live in the light. It's so much better to release the burdens of sin that we've been carrying. It's so much better to lose the mask, to drop the mask, the facade of righteousness. Lay it all down at the feet of Jesus today. Stop the game. He can see through that. He doesn't want our performance. He wants our hearts because he loves us. Let him lift that burden of sin off of you today. Let him lift it. Let him take that from you so you can be walking in the light with a clear conscience before God no more secrets no more shame no more performance come to Jesus let him have it let him have it let today be the day of repentance and great joy and maybe for some of us today salvation if we've never cried out to Jesus to forgive us of our sins to cleanse us from all unrighteousness and to confess him as Lord and to have his spirit come and fill us and take over would you do that today would you cry out to him he loves you he loves you while we were still sinners. In our sin, at our worst moments, Jesus died for us. And three is belief, is turning to Jesus. We don't just repent and turn from sin. We turn to the open hands, the nail-scarred hands of Jesus, waiting to hug and embrace sinners who are coming home, prodigals who are coming home. And I'll conclude with this quote from a, a great book called Gentle and Lowly. I want to end with the heart of Jesus today. Because often in our sin and our shame, we keep away from Jesus. And we don't go to him just as we are with our hearts and our sins and our pride because we think we're going to get a rebuke rather than an embrace. And the heart of Jesus is he loves it. They pop, shame, pop, they, they pop champagne in heaven when a sinner repents and comes home. Okay, so, re, so listen to this. A compassionate doctor has traveled deep into the jungle to provide medical care to a primitive tribe afflicted with a contagious disease. He has had his medical equipment flown in. He has correctly diagnosed the problem. And the antibiotics are prepared and available. He is independently wealthy, has no need of any kind of financial compensation. But as he seeks to provide care, the afflicted refuse his care. They want to take care of themselves. They want to heal on their own terms. But finally, a few brave young men step forward to receive the care being freely provided. And what does the doctor feel? What does the physician feel? One word, joy. His joy increases to the, to the degree that the sick come to him for help and healing because it's the whole reason he came. How much more if the diseased are not strangers but his own family? So with us and so with Christ. 
He does not get flustered and frustrated when we come to him for fresh forgiveness, for renewed pardon with distress and need and emptiness. That's the whole point. It's the exact thing. It's what he came to heal. He went down into the horror of death and plunged out through the other side in order to provide a limitless supply of mercy and grace to his people. When you come to Christ for mercy and love and help in your anguish and perplexity and sinfulness, you are going with the flow of his deepest wishes, not against them. Let's go to Christ right now with hearts humbled before him and open and honest before him. So that now I'll go quiet and you guys talk to your Savior. He'd love to hear from you. is that you see and know absolutely everything about us. The worst things about us, you already know, Lord Jesus. And the beauty of your gospel, Romans 5, says that while we were still sinners and you were fully aware of all of our sins and shortcomings, you still died for us out of love for us to rescue us from that which was enslaving us and bring us home and clothe us not in filthy rags and condemnation, but to clothe us in your righteousness and your forgiveness, God. I pray, Holy Spirit, now that your love would be poured into the hearts of your church, that they would see that you have so much better to offer us than our sins, God. Sweeter wine, rivers of living water, richer food. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. So come, Holy Spirit, give us eyes to see your beauty, your wonder, so much so that we would loosen our grip on things that are enslaving us and are killing us, Lord God. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your kindness. Every day your mercies are new towards us, God. There's not a day that goes by that we are not rich in your mercy, God. So thank you, Lord. We bless your name, we love you, and we thank you for the cross. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your compassion and your love towards us. In Jesus' name, amen and amen.